Welcome to episode 13 of Breakout Culture, a fitting number for a podcast recorded during the week of Halloween. I'm Ed Vasey and I'm none other than the culture editor of Country and Townhouse magazine. And I'm Charlotte Metcalf, and I'm the associate editor at Country and Townhouse. Now, before we start, we just want to warn you that this podcast was recorded before Saturday's lockdown announcement. However, apart from the November performances at the bridge, we hope that most of what we talk about today will be relevant to the rest of this week till Thursday and in December. But who knows? Anyway, we decided to leave it as it is. So back to Ed kicking it off. It's November, so we thought it was time to start looking ahead to Christmas, even though everyone is a bit wary about making plans in case of further lockdowns. But this podcast is all about things you can go out and do. Last week, we heard from Andrew Lloyd Webber about how hungry people are for live theatre. So we're going to keep you in the loop about upcoming shows that we like. And we start today with telling you about an exciting new production of A Christmas Carol, which is coming to the bridge Theatre, starring Simon Russell Beale as Ebenezer Scrooge, a match made in heaven. Many, of course, know all about the Bridge Theatre. It's got a fabulous position below Tower Bridge, and it was founded in 2017 by the two Nicks, Nick Starr and Nick Heitner. Nick Heitner, of course, was the artistic director at the National Theatre for many, many years, uh, and then opened his new theatre, and, of course... He has so many hits to his name, both theatre, opera and film, Miss Saigon, The History Boys, The Madness of King George, One Man, Two Governors. And amazingly, he's agreed to come on our podcast. Good morning, Nick. Morning, morning. I'm really happy to be here. (laughs) Well, good morning, Nick. And we're absolutely delighted that you're with us today because I love The Bridge and I particularly really, really loved Midsummer Night's Dream last year. Oh, which thank was, you. Oh, it was brilliant. It was so magnificently staged with just about the funniest bottom and naughtiest pup I've ever seen. And I love <laughs> The Bridge so much that I'm actually going to see their, uh, David Hare's Beat the Devil um, with Ralph Fiennes on Thursday. So I really am a proper paid-up fan. So we're really looking forward to hearing your plans for Christmas Carol and how you're going to use your very adaptable space to stage it. But first, can you tell us about fake news and Simon Ansel's work in progress and everything else you've got coming up before Christmas? Yeah, we've got... We do, our big objective is to stay open and to stay open for as much of the day as possible and for as many days as possible because we just think it's better to be open and keeps our company together keeps all our colleagues together and although um, as I'm sure everybody in the theatre is telling you uh, it's really impossible to make it pay with a socially distanced audience we worked out it would cost us less to keep the doors open than it would to keep the doors closed so we're thrilled that we've got uh, we're just coming to the end of our first season of solo shows then we have another couple of solo appearances Simon Amstel who will be for two weeks testing out new material for his big show next year and from what I hear I've never I've, n- I've never been to one of his work in progress shows they're, they're, they're a riot because he's he's uh, he's offering a running commentary on whether his material is working uh, at the same time as trying out his material and the running commentary uh, is just as funny 
funny as the material. Fake News is by Osman Beg, who is, as well as an actor, a Sky News journalist. And it's a, a show that, uh, that won glowing reviews uh, on the Edinburgh Fringe and is, um, is about uh, the plague, the other plague, that we're all suffering uh, at the same time as we're suffering this physical plague, the plague of fake news, the plague of the degeneration of the relationship between uh, right-wing populists, basically, and the media. So it's uh, um, uh, it's a very it's an interesting, very lively, very funny show. So those are those are in the on the menu for the middle of November. And then you've got a Christmas Carol. We have. So look, I'm going to be honest that that it wasn't what we thought we were going to be doing. Um, we, <laughs> we've um, we've gone through so many different iterations of what we were going to do over Christmas, over the beginning of next year. But the deal now is we just have to stay light on our feet and um, react to the situation as it comes at us. There was a time, I don't know if you remember it, when in... A hundred percent good faith. Everybody was hoping that um, by November we might be able to invite full houses in again. So we had plans for the full house scenario. Then we thought we might do bring forward Ibsen, John Gabriel Borkman, a wonderful, exciting, great play, but a serious play. And then it became clear that we weren't going to get full houses and that has seven actors and and is quite ambitious. And we thought the only way we can do that is if we guarantee to ourselves that we can sell every seat and we realized we couldn't so we because you can guarantee nothing these days so we postponed that postponed that a bit and in came christmas carol for three actors so it's great for simon R- russell beale who was going to be in the ibsen uh, and i both love dickens and we never really done any dickens and dickens uh, needs adaptation before you put it on the stage uh, so this just felt like a, a great thing to do. And the way we're doing it with three actors is essentially the three actors will use the book. Uh, there's no enormous act of theatrical adaptation going on. Uh, what they'll speak is what Dickens wrote, but they will play all the parts between them. And it will be the kind of theatre where uh, you hope that between three incredibly skilled actors and a big pile of stuff, uh, you can create a whole world. You can create London. You can create all the Christmas parties. You can go on all the journeys that the ghosts of Christmas past, present and yet to come take Scrooge on. And so I, I hope it'll be I hope it'll be a really festive, spooky, um, exciting and inventive evening. There you go. Who else is in it with Simon? Uh, two really fantastic younger actors, Patsy Ferran, who has made a huge name for herself recently at the National, the Almeida and the West End. And uh, the guy is Eben Figueredo, who has been was in Young Marks, in fact, but also was um, was in the most recently the production of Cyrano that was a sensation in the West End uh, with James McAvoy. But Dickens, uh, you know, delivered his novels as performances, one-man shows. So, in a sense, it's a homage to Dickens. He sure did. And in fact, uh, that whole business of Dickens standing and 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 giving extracts from his novels and being a show goes back to Christmas Carol. It was the first one he did it with. Um, he he used he used to do Christmas Carol all by himself. He loved doing it. I'm thinking about the world of Nick Heitner because you have certain there are certain people who are Nick Heitner's world. Is Simon Russell Beale? You work with a lot. 
Yeah. Alan Bennett, you work with a lot. I do, yeah. You've got three or four major heroes. Yes, Simon I love working with. Alan Bennett I love working with, obviously. I have some pretty impressive ones. Maggie Smith, uh, Leslie Leslie Manville um, I love working with. Um, I've done a lot of Shakespeare with Adrian Lester. Um, And um, uh, so you find actors, and Rory Kinnear, you find actors you really admire um, they, but then they, and and you just want to work with them again, and writers that you really admire, and you want to work with them again, and and you know intense affairs can happen fairly late in your career. I enjoy working with people who come from a different, completely different place than me, and make me think completely differently. But then the other thing that is very enjoyable is finding people who are who who create and have the same kind of intuitions and the same and think in the same way about the business of theater and obviously i just i I really enjoy that at the other end of that spectrum is when you work for the first time with someone who you think oh my god this is amazing and a midsummer night's dream which charlotte saw and she mentioned the funniest bottom ever and indeed i think (laughs) i think he was hamed anamashon um so who is obviously now going to have the most immense career, but I, I would jump to get back in a rehearsal room with Hamed Anamashon. I mean, just one of the Where funniest... Where did you find him, Nick? Well, he was in... I saw him in Barbershop Chronicles at the National. Oh, um, yes. And I thought... And he had a big monologue in the middle of that. And I thought, that's one of the funniest five minutes I've ever spent in the theatre. I know it's very difficult to plan ahead. I mean, nobody can plan ahead. But what's your vision for the bridge in... 2021, you know, as far as you can have a vision. I think at the moment our vision is we remain extremely light on our feet and we don't plan too far ahead because we have three fully designed, fully cast shows, which at different times over the last uh, eight months we've had to postpone. What will the audience situation be like in um, January, February, March? If it's the same as it is now, then I think I think we're going to have to pull another new idea, another rabbit out of the hat before we get back to something like um, the ability to have a full house. I'm sure Andrew Lloyd Webber explained all this to you, but the 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 economics just don't work if you're playing to as we are thirty percent um to, in order to socially distance the audience um the best we can do is just about keep the cash in balance as we wait for better times i don't think there's an been an upside for the theater in this pandemic. The more influential phenomenon this year on the arts has been the new accelerated urgency uh, surrounding the whole business of representation um, and diversity. And that's good. That's interesting. And that's, um, that's been a kind of really necessary prod, uh, more than a prod. It's a, it's, it's a, it's, um, it feels like an imperative. And I think that's great. And I think I can see that happening right over the theatre, even as it sputters back into life. But, you know, we, we remain optimistic. We think, we think that what do we have that will see us through? We have a new theatre with a huge 
huge foyer. It opens out onto a big empty space. It It's relatively straightforward to adapt its auditorium to make it feel safe. We're fully confident that we can open our second theatre in King's Cross, which will be a very similar setup. We hope that having two new theatres and the ability to, to do classics when we need to, but to commission new and exciting work, including musicals, um, we'll see us through. Oh, well, that's brilliant. What a positive note to end on. Thank you so much. It was so great to have you on, and I'm looking forward to being in your theatre on Thursday. <laughs> uh, that's great that you're coming. That's, uh, uh, that's good. Nick, thank you so much. Well, thank you. It's been really good to talk to you. We want to turn now to London's Carnaby Street, obviously the home of fashion since the 60s, but it's now the home of an exciting new initiative called 21 Youth Street at number 56B. As part of Black History Month, 21 Youth Street is a pop-up shop that showcases 50 exciting Black-owned businesses. Now, before you think this is a pop-up showing off functional widgets and wondering what on earth it's doing featuring in a cultural podcast, it's actually a curation of really creative stuff, from fashion and beauty products to books and art, and it's going to be open until the end of the year. It's the brainchild of My Runway Group, an organisation set up to inspire and empower young black creatives, and its founder, Kojo Marfo, is with us today. Hello, Kojo. Hello, Charlotte. Hello, Kojo. How are you? Very well, thank you, Ed. Brilliant. Look, this is a brilliant idea. It puts books and art and photography alongside fashion, a bit of yoga and beauty thrown in. But before we talk about the aims of My Runway Group in general, tell us a bit about what they're going to find if they pop into 21 New Street. If they pop into 21 New Street, which is uh, 56B Cardi B Street, um, you're going to see the very first concept store that's showcasing different types of Black-owned businesses. So you have different products um, displayed as a complete concept store from homeware um, to clothing to a bit of tech to beauty, to just different areas, to food that have all been put together um, in a very unique way. Currently, we have about over 576 businesses that are looking to stock with us. So to us, it just shows that there is actually an issue here in terms of um, visibility and placement, product placement and business placement as well in, in high street areas. So for, we are only currently stocking about 36. And now that we've been extended to the end of year, we're hoping to uh, be able to uh, um, stock a lot more um, businesses but we did have um, a social media call out and also do a, a mailing list call out and we just received hundreds and hundreds of businesses that are looking for this have been looking for this opportunity and finally have found it with us so um i just want to talk a bit about this issue because it is uh i think quite important um yeah in terms of fashion and culture because uh for example uh, depending on your skin tone, you'll want to use different makeup. But also, sure. and I don't want to give the wrong impression about me here, but I was struck by uh, the lingerie, for example, again, being different tones and so on. Right. So having a person of colour doing the design yeah. is important. It's very, very important. And I think it just shows representation in the fashion and beauty industry. Even for some people that also go into stores to shop or quickly get to makeup, um, if they don't find it online and they just have to stick with what is available. So having a concept store that caters to um, Black-owned um, um, taste and people from our community that are looking, have been constantly looking for these options, it just makes it like a mecca of where you can find everything at a go, especially with beauty. 
And we've had several people popping, just being nosy, wondering what a black home store looks like and what are you stocking here? And oh my God, I didn't think I can find this on Carnaby Street. So these type of things just makes it makes us realize that we actually are doing the right thing. And then hopefully a lot more high streets can replicate this model. Do you think any of the buyers from some of the major retailers have t- have noticed this and they're going to take I'm, I'm pretty sure they have noticed this um, um there's a few conversations going on um we've also been extended like i said from a month of just being a um, black history month pop-up into um a three months um campaign now and hopefully have conversations about maybe having like a one-year residency or more but then the plan is always to replicate this in different cities as well so it'd be just starts to become the norm and the next thing we wouldn't have to be doing pop-ups anymore but we have more of like a solid residency where this people can just feel comfortable to just walk into stores knowing exactly like this knowing exactly what to expect what's really exciting about it as well is there's lots of art and books as well aren't there it's a showcase for writers and artists too can you tell us a bit about them we see every talent as a business so um in terms of uh, um, artists from underprivileged backgrounds, um, they wouldn't probably get the opportunity to showcase in certain galleries and very high profile areas or spaces. So what we've done is converting our, um, we have two floors, our, our, our downstairs area is literally going to be, is converted into a gallery where people can find out about different types of black um, artists who are producing amazing work, but lack the connection to new audience. And also we do have, um, we're stocking um, offers um, that again don't get published or uh, find it difficult to get publishing deals or even be stocked into um, um, bookstores or nationwide, which is really like a dream to them. So some of these people are self-published um, and only try to manage to make sales online um, if they're lucky. However, because we do have spaces for um, bookstore, one of our biggest selling is actually um, a black author who literally launched her book about a month ago and she sold over 40 copies in like a week. Um, and just to show that this kind of model works you just people up a post on instagram just thanking us that she never thought this was going to happen she never thought people were going to be really invested into um her book like that and it just giving her the right confidence that she needs to even produce a sequel to the book that's brilliant and i should say i mean at uh, your store you've got some actually quite mainstream names i don't say mainstream in a pejorative way you've got tiny tempers label what we wear but also the artist yinka ilori who's getting yeah. a, a lot of coverage at the moment particularly for oh his yes he's having a great yeah okay and also stormzy's murk, murky books yeah so um with stormzy's murky books we're going to be um stocking um jeremiah manuel um i think later this month um but then there's interest from his people and jeremiah jeremiah is a great friend of our brand He's um, presented awards. He's received awards on our behalf. Um, and he's very much invested in what we do. Um, with Storms, um, with Tiny Temple, we currently stock his clothing line, which is what, uh, which is called What We Wear. And um, again, we're looking into um, working around with some mentorship program with him as well. So young designers um, can um, learn from him as well. So it's not just about being next to Tiny Temple's brand in the store, but it's also b- being able to create a space where he can now take on um, young designers and open up his wide range of access of um, um, contacts and network to these young designers that will be, be- will benefit from um, fashion weeks and um, distributors and retailers and whatnot that he has some access to. So um, as a, like I said, it's more than a pop-up. It's definitely a conscious effort to make sure 
there's a lot of visibility involved and there's a lot of range in terms of what we do. And also Yinka, um, had a, he's had a great year with awards and launching his homeware and Yinka is having a takeover. Um, we haven't fully agreed on the dates because the stock literally just came in, um, probably sometime in November as well. Literally is probably going to have like a two week takeover where people can come in. And for the first time, that will be Yinka's very first pop up as well. So we're looking um, forward to that. It's going to be an amazing session. That's brilliant. Well, he's a huge name. Now, quickly tell us, some people may not be able to make it to Carnaby Street. Do you have a sure. website where people can uh, purchase some of stuff? We currently have my runway group as our website that has list everything that we do. So we're working on an e-commerce uh, website that should launch the first week in November. And that way, people that can't make it to Carnaby should, will be able to still support um, Black and Carnaby online. Well, Kojo, thanks so much. Really pleased to have had you on. Really Thank pleased you very to much, Ed. Play a small part in bringing people's attention to this fantastic initiative. And we wish you the best of luck. And I will either go online or pop down to Carnaby Street. Oh, much appreciated. Looking forward to seeing you, Ed. We turn now to Philip Mould, the art dealer and well-known sleuth that many of you will know as the host of BBC One's long-running Fake or Fortune alongside Fiona Bruce. What few of you might know about Philip is that he has a magnificent gallery called Philip Mould & Co at 18 to 19 Pall Mall. There's a wonderful exhibition on there at the moment called Pioneers that celebrates 500 years of women in art and Philip is here with us to tell us about it. Hello, Philip. Good morning. Good afternoon. <laughs> good day, Philip. Is it? Good day. Good day to you all. Good day to you all. Yes, 500 years of British uh, women in art. Uh, yes, this is an amazing exhibition. Uh, in fact, uh, I went to it the other day. It explores the history of women artists who've defied the status quo. It goes as far back as the 16th century to those at the front of the avant-garde at the start of the 20th century. And of course, without wishing to share your limelight in any way, women artists are very current at the moment because of the great Artemisia show at the National Gallery. But you've been looking at these artists. You're not a Johnny-come-lately to this. You've been looking at these artists for 30 years, but this is the first time you've displayed them chronologically. And I know, without wishing to focus too much on one object, but I know that you're particularly proud, for example, of the Virginia Bell self-portrait painted at Charleston. So perhaps we can kick off our entry to the exhibition with you telling us about that. Yes, of course. And Bloomsbury and Charleston and that sort of fizzy group of intellectuals and artists and writers has really caught my imagination in recent years. I was I was really blown away by the works that, that, that Vanessa was doing between about 1910 and 1920, where she was she was a sort of mad, bad, dangerous international artist. And then throughout her life, and this self-portrait that I've got is actually quite a lot later, it's in the 1950s. What is rather wonderful is that even though she became slightly more demure in her style, occasionally she would look back uh, at her early days, at her, 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 her wild youth, and then introduce it. And this self-portrait shows her sitting in the attic uh, room, the studio uh, at Charleston. She's wearing a broad-brimmed hat. It's the same chair, in fact, with uh, Omega Workshop pattern uh, that her sister was photographed in, her sister, of course, being Virginia Woolf. And she's decided in this picture to make it a very serious statement of her as an artist. She's holding brushes. In the bottom left-hand corner is a painting alluding to her exciting fizzy past. But when it comes to her face, her face is painted out. It's rather like a 
rather like one of those popes by Bacon that were, was being done around about the same period. And she has she has reduced the image from a sort of, hey, look at me, to, hey, look at what I'm doing. Um, uh, I adore it. It's a picture that's been around a bit in exhibitions. And I've now captured it for this show. It's hanging on the wall. So the show of 25 works, which is uh, a viewable uh, in, in the gallery at Palmal goes right back. It reaches right back. The arm goes back into the 16th century. And uh, we've managed to pull from that sort of dark period in English painting, pull out the work of Lavinia Tierlink, for example, a, a miniaturist who worked under four monarchs. Um, and then um, we sweep into the 17th century with an artist called Joan Carlyle, who was a, a contemporary of uh, Van Dyck. And then right into the lap of the most astonishingly successful artist called Mary Beale, who, you know, forget the fact that she's a woman. She was just an enormously successful artist. Uh, people came and sat to her, particularly bishops and clerics, which was very useful for her. We don't have in the 17th century um, painters who managed to grapple and wrestle to the ground the massive breadth of, of, of biblical um, and mythological material that someone like Artemisia does. They probably could have done it, but there wasn't a market for it. But what we do have is one or two instances where a female artist has become successful. Um, she's climbed the that, that, that hideous sort of man-dominated greasy pole and then becomes transcendently successful. And it's almost as if, rather like Artemisia, because she's a woman, um, because she's interesting and engaging, um, she's more successful than her male contemporaries. So take Mary Beale, for example. She was so successful that her husband um, uh, gave up his job. He originally worked at the patents office and just ran this massively busy uh, practice. Um, and... Uh, she specialised, amongst others, in clerics, which was a very clever idea because one of the problems of being a female portraitist was that you had men in your studio. And in an overbearingly censorious age, um, people would say, you know, aye, aye, you know, what's going on there? Well, she pulled off a blinder. She managed to get the Archbishop of Canterbury to sit to her. Um, uh, her father was a cleric as well. And so... There was an awful lot of clerical collar around the place and, and ecclesiastical garment, which somehow, in the eyes of, of, of the judgmental society around her, sort of sanitised what she was doing. And like Artemisia, her husband could basically sit back um, uh, and watch his wife be the breadwinner, which in itself, of course, is is novel in the 17th century terms. So can anyone drop in, Philip, or do you need to book to come and see these paintings? No, you can you can drop in, but weekdays, uh, not weekends. Oh, well, it's a wonderful gallery, and I'm sure all our listeners will be really thrilled to find that there's something they can do in the middle of London without having to book and queue and book and queue, which, um, much as we love all our big institutions, it, it can get a bit tiresome without being able to go and do anything spontaneously anymore. Well, I know it happened to me yesterday in Titian. So I, I, I queued up and just as I was going getting into the um, uh, National Gallery, I was told I had to get rid of my umbrella. That meant <laughs> that meant having to go right round that massive sprawling edifice of the National Gallery to a little sort of kiosk to to check it in, um, which took about another seven or eight minutes. So then when I came back, I couldn't find my wife and, well, you know, it got better. 
<laughs> we're, we're going to see the Titian shortly, but let's turn now to the telly. When is your next series of Fake or Fortune? We are in production at the moment, um, making uh, another run of four, which will come out in the um, probably in the summer of next year. And, you know, in times COVID, obviously, it's a little bit tricky, but we are getting round it. And um, the other thing you're involved in, which I uh, am also involved in a bit, is Kids in Museums, the charity, which uh, is a wonderful charity that tries to encourage, well, wants to get museums to be more kid-friendly. How's, mm. how's all that going? That's, that's going really well. So we have this annual award. We had um, four or 500 entries for it this year, which is the Family Friendly Award. This year, we, we had to judge it by looking at how how people were inspired to do things at home in many instances as a result of museum, museum activity. And what was very encouraging and, and uplifting is that museums, you know, responding in, in the hours, hours of need um, were, were coming up with, with, with inspirational ideas uh, for, for, for young people to respond to at home. So talking of online, Philip, you were very active yourself during lockdown because you got online in your own house, didn't you? We did because we had nowhere else to go. <laughs> so, so, so what we did was, um, my son is very handy with a camera, and in this instance, it was it was mostly an iPhone, and um, I'm surrounded at home with pictures that I've either taken home because I love them or no one wants to buy them, um, and so we have both types in the ga- uh, uh, at home, <laughs> um, and actually, I rather like the pictures sometimes that no one no one likes because because they're tough. Uh, often tough. And so what I did was little films, walking around the house. Um, you know, my, my wife would sort of kindly absent herself from the room. Oliver, my son, would follow me around. Uh, the dog would appear. That was always a good idea. And they went, um, for reasons I can't explain, they went really well because it became a sort of a sort of bit of an autobiography uh, through the works of art. And it was much more informal, you know, unlike Fake or Fortune, where you're sort of scripted, one could be a little bit gentler. And we were all suffering. Um, um, some of us were even benefiting from, from actually the break with normal life. But you know what I mean? We were all together. There was a sort of win the war feeling. And um, I, 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 I felt I was communicating with a very um, big audience by the end. I think we had about a million hits. Oh and it yeah, and it, 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 it well, it's, you know, <laughs> and art dealers aren't really that useful for many observations, but they can sometimes tell you how people behave in relation to their space and the objects around them. And as a result of lockdown, I've noticed that a lot of people are caring more about the windows in the form of works of art that they have on their walls, you know, the portals of imagination that, that, that through which they need to pass in lockdown. The home and the home space has become a, a more significant habitat but I think it's also about um, the personal and the passionate. You know, there's nothing more compelling than seeing someone like you, a, a brilliant expert, talking about their personal passion. Oh, uh, I agree. We're, we're so used to either the pedagogic approach of being told why something is great or exactly. where we're being, we're being enthused about why we should buy it. But 
when you've got no reason other than to say, I bought this and these are the reasons I bought it and this is how it works in my house and this is how I like it. Yeah, it is, it is, it is a successful formula. It's also part of a bigger, a bigger movement, I feel, uh, towards sort of frankness and honesty. Um, and, 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 and fessing up for when you, to when you've made mistakes as well. And as a result of, of, of art in isolation. I've, I've changed. I've changed my way I talk about things and I think write about things. And I'm not quite sure what form it's going to take in words, but I'm, I'm interested to see um, whether I can actually translate um, art in isolation, the films, which are on YouTube, um, into um, a, a big book called, you know, rather grandly and, and possibly overly ambitiously, Old Master. Well, I think what's so brilliant about what you're doing, Philip, is that everyone says, don't they, that rule one when buying art is you must like it. You know, if you're going to buy it as an investment, forget it, because so many people are, are so worried about what people think of them. And people are very nervous about buying art because they're not sure they're getting it right. And what you're trying to do is articulate why you like something and helping other people to look again at paintings and and maybe learn a whole new vocabulary as well as to how to talk about art. Yeah, you're, you're of course, absolutely right. But I think something else that I've learned is that, that, that the path to loving something can sometimes can sometimes be one um, of 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 anecdote and narration, um, there are ways in which you can respond to things. The way to loving something is certainly an initial visual response. But it's also what's quite interesting is if you're in the, in the company of someone who has committed themselves to it, who is able to actually say why, for better or worse, they're in love with it, that that style of 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 narration and commitment can sometimes be um a a subtle and unobvious way into getting to love it yourself well old master i think on that note we're going to uh end it that was a fascinating uh chat love it really was yeah but look forward to the book old master we'll spend all our spare moments on youtube watching art in isolation (laughs) and um (laughs) all power the kids in museums thank you so much philip well thank you and 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 can i just say what a brilliant job you're doing and and you are giving us uh warmth in cold times (laughs) oh thank you that's all we've got time for this week but i'd like to give a quick shout out to the benenden old girls again one of them contacted us to say how much she enjoyed listening to andrew lloyd weber last week we love the fact you're still listening and we love all our listeners feedback so please keep it coming you can email us on breakoutculture at countryandtownhouse.co.uk or you can leave the comments on the podcast site that you use. And for more cultural highlights, you can subscribe to our What's On newsletter at www.countryandtownhouse.co.uk slash newsletter. There you'll also be able to sign up to our monthly Great British Brands newsletter featuring a brilliant new Christmas gifts guide. And finally, don't miss our sister podcast, House Guest, with Carol Annette, who goes behind the scenes with the biggest interior design names in the business. But for now, goodbye and see you next week. Goodbye.